0: Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in Your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the Word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for Your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. Amen. How can the cross of Christ offer us confidence in a life that is difficult? How can the cross of Christ offer us confidence in a life which is difficult? That's the question for this morning. We're in the third and final of our three-sermon series called Life on the Summit. You've got it up there on the screen. We started with forgiven and free. Then we did adopted as God's children, and this morning we have confident in Christ in all things. Now you're going to need your text, so if you'd be kind enough to take out Romans 8 from your bulletin or your PDA, and I'm hoping you can get it up on the screen, because you're going to need it. I want to make three observations about this majestic passage, which is simply awesome and in need of unpacking over a series of years, much less minutes. It's so rich and so profound. So, the danger of life, the love of God, and our security in God. Those are my three points. The danger of life, the love of God, and the security in God. And we want to take them each in their turn. What I first want you to notice, brothers and sisters, about this passage is Paul's what I want to call ruthless realism. Life is difficult. Life is hard. How do I know that? Well, it's implicit in what Paul says if you're paying attention. Look at your text and think for a second at these lists toward the end of the passage. Look at verse 35, first of all. Look at the list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Everybody see where I am? And then in case we missed it, verse 38. Death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, power, height, depth. And then just in case he thinks he left anything out, nor anything else in all creation. This is a description of a Christian that's sent into a war zone. And already we're in trouble because in the average American church, the average pastor is speaking to an audience that wants to be entertained. Whereas Paul is... Writing to an army that needs to be trained. Those are two totally different things. One of the things I never tire of pointing out is the Lord's Prayer is not simply the prayer that we are to pray every day, although it is that, and that's indispensable for us. It's also the pair of glasses which we are to put on every day through which we are to see the world. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer every day, we pray, you remember this, I hope, "...lead us not into temptation." And deliver us from evil. Which means what? It means the world we go into is filled with things that lead us to temptation and it's filled with evil. It's not neutral. There are children's stories when there's a wicked witch running around and you just don't feel very good when you know she's there at the beginning. It's not a neutral story. The children are not okay. It's not a safe world. You don't have to go any farther than Paul's own life. Paul lived this. One of the commentators speaking about the first list, that's verse 35, says about St. Paul, every single one of those things was experienced by St. Paul himself up to this point except the sword. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you're taking notes, you can take it down beginning at verse 24. Paul, who doesn't like talking about himself, launches on a little segue and summarizes some of what he's been through. See, if you remember this, just listen. He's talking about what he's been through in his life. 5 times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. 3 times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 3 times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. In danger from robbers, in dangers from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Life is difficult. That is the way that M. Scott Peck starts out his book, The Road Less Traveled. Here's a psychologist writing about treating people and helping them to get healthier mentally. And his opening sentence in that most famous book is this, Life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because only when we truly see this truth are we able to transcend it. Once we know that life is difficult, once we understand and accept it, then life can no longer be difficult because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult is seen in a different way. Yes, exactly. You don't have to go any farther than this past week if you want examples. Hilary Mantel died toward the end of last week, arguably one of the greatest writers of her generation. She may be known to you, she may not. She died at age 70. Her front-page obituary in the New York Times toward the end of the week told the story of her life. It had lots of pieces. What struck me the most was what an incredible, intense amount of suffering she had for essentially her entire life. She says in the article, she says about her childhood, which was terrible, she says, I was not well-suited to be a child. She was sick all the time. She went to doctors all the time. She was in pain all the time. One of her doctors, think of this now, this is a doctor about a child, called her Little Miss Neverwell. That's from her doctor. She was misdiagnosed again and again. They finally diagnosed endometriosis by the time she was 20. She didn't get it fully handled surgically until she was 27. And she says after that point, she was in pain every single day. So much pain was she in that she had no ability to keep a daily job. She couldn't do it because her pain was so debilitating she couldn't continue through an eight-hour workday. day. That's why she became a writer. She was in pain almost her entire life. That is not easy. And that is the way life is. Where do we ever get this idea that for Christians somehow life is a bowl of cherries? Please, would you be so kind as to toss that in the rubbish heap as we begin our time together? Nothing could be further from the truth. Are we all together? Everybody could give their testimony this morning about the ways that life is difficult, but I know enough to know that life is challenging and has been challenging and is challenging and will be challenging. And it only makes sense, this passage, if you put it in the context of that reality therapy, if you want to call it that. So you're going to go home and someone's going to say, what did Kendall preach about? He said, life is difficult. It was awful. And no, that's not what I want you to say. I want you to say, life is difficult. It was realistic. Because that's where we live and move and have our being. That's the world that the Lord's Prayer is praying us into. That's the world that Paul is writing in. That's where people really live and move and have their being. That's the world that Jesus ministered to. It's not a safe world. If it was a safe world, they wouldn't have crucified him on the cross. we all together so far. So number one, life is full of what Shakespeare called the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Now Paul takes this head on and he says two things in response which are awesome and majestic beyond words. The first, he says, is we must respond to these difficulties by understanding that the way to deal with them is to think from the cross out, not from the problems in. I can't say this Often enough, the difficulty with problems is mountains become molehills. We lose perspective. And Paul had this experience on the Damascus Road, if you remember. Remember, he was archenemy number one of the church. You do remember like He was the guy that was on the post office walls. You know, FBI number one, most wanted. He was the one person the Christians never wanted to see. And when he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road in the midst of noonday prayer, you remember he goes blind for three days. And he has this phrase later in his writing. He says, the eyes of the heart. You remember that? Well, that's where he learned to see during those three days of the eyes of the heart. And what did he see? He saw the crucified Christ and he saw the glory of God shining in the face of the crucified Christ for three days. And that's all he saw. And that impression stayed with him the rest of his life. So when he says, look at your text of verse 31. When he says what he says, he's thinking of that moment. He's thinking of what God did on the cross. He's thinking from the cross out. He's thinking of the glory of God shining in the face of the crucified Lord that he saw on the Damascus road. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave us up from his all gave him up for us all, sorry. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And please notice that the the language here is the language of deep knowledge. It is the language of confidence. This does not mean that believers know what Paul is talking about in some kind of speculative manner. This is a, this is a deep knowledge. Spurgeon says in one place, which I really love, he says, you don't need to tell me how honey tastes. I know right? And Paul is saying, I know that God did not spare his own son for me. And so I'm going to live my life whenever I face difficulties in the light of the fact that God died for my sins. God loves me so much that he sent his own son to die for me. I'm so wicked. God had to die for me. And God is so good that he wanted to die for me. And I start from there, not from the problems, so that the problems are seen in their proper light. And nothing is more important than starting with the fact that God loves us and God is on our side. One story about the cross before I move on. From the 19th century. From a preacher who went to a coal mine one particular day and descended during the noon hour lunch break to give the miners the gospel of salvation. He gave his message. He wasn't sure how it went. Didn't think it went very well. And he met the foreman, on his way back up the shaft, and being the adventuresome person that he was, he asked the foreman what he thought of the message. Because the foreman was there standing in the back. The man said this, Oh, it's too cheap. I can't believe in a faith such as that. Without an immediate reply to his remark, the preacher asked, How do you get out of this place? And he didn't even hesitate. He said, Well, I just get in the cage. And the preacher looked at him and said, Does it take you a long time to get to the top? He said, No, no, only a few seconds. And the preacher said, well, that's very easy and simple. Do you need to raise yourself? Of course not, said the miner. As I have said, you have nothing to do but get into the cage. And then the preacher looks at him and says this, what about the people who sunk the shaft and perfected all this arrangement? Was there much labor and expense as part of the process? The foreman looked at him proudly and said, Yes, indeed, the shaft is a thousand feet deep and was sunk at great cost to the proprietors, but it is our way out, and without it, we shall never be able to get to the surface. And the preacher looked at him and said, Just so. And when God's word tells you that whosoever believeth in the Son of God has eternal life, you say too cheap only if you forget, listen, that God's work to bring you and others out of the pit of destruction was accomplished at a vast cost. We're back to my sermon three weeks ago. Anybody remember? A great debt who can pay. You start there. You start there. Paul is absolutely convinced, no matter what the situation, and he's got a litany of difficult situations he's been through, is going through, and will go through, that God loved him so much as he gave his own son to take away his sins. And God's love is not only something in the past, but it's something in the present and something for the future, and God is for him. You all with me so far? How about the story of one of the most famous hymns, In the contemporary church in the West, anyway, for just a moment. Also about the love of God. But also about the fact that life is difficult. Horatio Spafford is the author. Born in 1828, rose to prominence as a businessman and as a lawyer in Chicago. It's an interesting story because it takes us through an important period of American history. He had four daughters and one son. He was very successful. He invested in real estate on the edge of Lake Michigan in Chicago in the 19th century. He was very well known. He was a Presbyterian elder. He was a friend of D.L. Moody. And all of a sudden, things started to become very, very difficult. His four-year-old son died of scarlet fever in 1871. Those of you who know your American history may remember, was the Great Chicago Fire. A lot of the buildings he invested in were burned. And then there was the panic of 1873, which was even worse, and he lost almost everything that he had. His wife and his four daughters were suffering so much that he decided to give him a break. He wanted to go with Moody himself to go to England. He was actually going to help D.L. Moody with an evangelistic crusade, and he was going to go on on a boat with his wife and his four daughters. But business situation, because of the fire, they had all the, I know you're going to be surprised, they had city zoning disputes. Shocker. Really deep zoning. The disputes were so bad, if he didn't stay behind, he was going to lose even more. So he had to go. Uh, send them on their way and stay behind. They're on this ship. They're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. They collide with another ship. Bang, smash, a Scottish ship, the Lock Urn. And of those on board being in danger, almost everyone died, including all four of his daughters. His wife barely survived. She was hanging on to a piece of debris, and eventually uh, somebody saw her and there's a famous moment in this story when she cables her husband 9 days later when she finally makes it to England thanks to this guy who rescued her in the boat and the telegram says saved alone what shall i do boom by the way spafford later framed that telegram and put it in his office anyway you 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 are remembering i'm telling you about him right well he wrote it is well with my soul And he wrote it when he took his own ship to go to be with his wife. And when he wrote it, the the captain of the ship had heard the story. And when he got to the place in the Atlantic Ocean where it was near, where his four daughters drowned, he told him. And at that moment, he went to his cabin and he wrote, It is well with my soul. Listen to two of the stanzas. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss, next verse, of his glorious thought, my sin not in part but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. You see what he's doing? He's taking the cross and sticking it right smack in the middle of the sudden death of all four of his daughters. That is not easy. It is incredibly important. That song was written out of immense suffering, and it is the song of somebody who lived Romans 8 powerfully. You all with me so far? All right, now, that's the love of God. Now the security in God. Fantastic, fantastic stuff. So you get to the end of this thing. And basically what he says is, it doesn't matter what the world throws at you, it doesn't matter what Satan throws at you, it doesn't matter what the flesh throws at you, nothing can in any way detach you or separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is an irrevocable trust based on the security of God's character, and when God makes a promise, he keeps it no matter what. And did you happen to notice what it says about us? It says not simply that we are conquerors. It says that we are more than conquerors. What does that mean, more than conquerors? A conqueror is somebody who wins a battle. But he's going past that. The commentators are all clear on this point. For a Christian to be more than a conqueror means somehow you believe that through the horrible thing that you go through, somehow God makes you even better, even though you don't fully understand how. I know you saw it in verse 28, but I want to make sure to say it. When it says, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's make sure we don't smuggle lousy theology in there, right? It doesn't say God makes everything that happens good. It doesn't say everything that happens is good. It says God makes all things work together for good for those who call him according to his purpose. And part of that involves mystery, right? It isn't always clear, especially at the time, how God's goodness is going to work itself out. But that God is good is going to work itself out no matter what. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're we're being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a level of intense suffering that is incredibly deep, like Spafford was suffering with the loss of his four daughters. No. In all these things, we are conquerors? That would be fantastic. No. We are more than victorious. This is the Pentecostal passage. These are these holy roller peoples that that are so important for the Christian life that nobody wants to talk about in the Anglican tradition that talk about the victorious Christian life. Sometimes they get on my nerves because they're so happy all the time. But they're so important because they teach us to claim the fact that we are supposed to, as Christians, live above our circumstances. One of my favorite stories about John Burwell and Bishop Salmon was when John Burwell was having a fight. This is early on in the building program. For those of you who know, that story involved a lot of buildings and a lot of money. And, and John finally got fed up with Bishop Salmon and said, Bishop Salmon, under the circumstances, I don't see how we can do this. And Bishop Salmon said back to him, John, what are you doing living under the circumstances? That's not where Christians live. That tends to make an impression. And lo and behold, the buildings came to be. It's one of those things that's not easy to do, but it's very important to understand and to know. It's a promise of the fact that God is not simply loving us and on our side, but God is working through all these terrible things in such a way as to always work things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. When I was in seminary, there are lots of stories that happened that made a deep impression on me. Seminary is not like other things because everybody who's there has made a massive sacrifice to get there. So everybody's left a profession and left houses and um, all that stuff. And you, you you form really deep bonds. And one of the people who was behind me in class, a guy named Bob Schuyler, he had a one-year-old. And I remember we'd go to chapel every day and people would announce, you know, stuff, prayer needs and so on and so forth. And his one-year-old was at one of the biggest hospitals in Pittsburgh. And he was born prematurely and there were lots of problems. And we'd come to chapel and he'd be up and we'd be better, and then he'd be down, and he would be very precarious, and then he'd be up, and then he'd be down. And this went on for almost four weeks, and then he, then he died. Basically, four weeks old. And I have this irrevocable memory of this passage. I'll never forget it. Because Bob Schuyler, being Bob Schuyler, decided to do something that most people just wouldn't do. And that is, not only did he have the funeral at the seminary chapel, But he had it in this way. He put his son in a box coffin. It was very small. And when the service began, he, he just the father, carried his son on that coffin on his back. And he placed it right here in front of the whole school. And one of my friends who's still in parish ministry, I remember it like it was yesterday, guess what the passage was that was read from the New Testament? Oh, it was this one. The whole chapter even though the prayer book says to leave out certain verses. And when my friend finished reading, you could have taken a pen and dropped it in that chapel. Now, brothers and sisters, that is tough. Losing somebody at four weeks is tough. And we've been through the whole up and down and the whole thing. But that is Romans 8. That is lived out Romans 8. That's what it means. And if it means something at that point, it means something at every point. You all with me? So what have I said? Life is difficult. God loves us. And God is the God whose character we can be secure in no matter what. You all with me so far? All right, now I go from preaching to meddling, then I'm done. So i got a couple of things I want to talk to you about. So let's, let's start with this. Let's start with this. Let's start with this question. Are you more than victorious in Christ now, even though life is difficult? That is to say, are you dealing with your struggles and the difficulties of your life the way Paul is calling you to in this passage? Yes or no? See, this is where you go from preaching to meddling. It doesn't mean anything unless we pause and say to ourselves, where do we live and move and have our being? And Paul says, you've got the unsearchable riches of Christ on your side. That word unsearchable in Ephesians means, think of this, there's no edge You ever thought about that? I love that image. You keep trying to get to the end of it, and you can't. It's infinite. You keep trying to find the end of the love of Christ, and it just keeps going and going. And you've got the love of Christ on your side no matter what. Here's here's another hymn that you may know very well. Uh, The the, the church's one foundation. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. So here's my point and my plea with you. I don't know what you're going through, but I know you're going through stuff because this is a really rough time. It's just a really, really crazy rough time. That's just all that you can say about it. It's really hard across the board in so many ways for so many people in so many areas. But we have the resources in Christ that are inexhaustible to deal with it. Please, brothers and sisters, bring them to bear on whatever it is he's calling you to deal with. That's point one. Point two is maybe the more important point. And I I wish I could plead with you about how important the second point is. And it's this. Most of us are dealing with struggles, but they're probably not right now life and death struggles. That is to say, there's only a couple of times in your life when you're really, you know, kind of hanging out there. There's, There's certain stresses that are just really big. And here's the thing I want to make an observation about. When you get to those points, it's too late to blow the dust off the family Bible. And it would be really great if you could call Chris or Trevor, but they're not going to get there on time. All you've got is your resources at hand. I got this vivid image of one of my friends whose wife had a heart condition. And he called me in the middle of the day one day, and his wife was in severe tachycardia and was probably about to die. And I walked in and I said, Bud, let's pray. And he looked like I shot him. And I held his wife's hand and I said, Bud, if we can't pray in a time like this, we can't pray at all. So the second thing I want to say is I want you to promise me that when you face what's coming at you because something's going to come It's going to, you're going to feel at the moment no matter what it is that you can't I, Lord I can't do this and what I want you to promise me is to say the love of God and the security of God are sufficient for this I want you to say neither death nor life nor whatever this is is too big for Christ it feels too big for me okay but it's not too big for Him and I want you to plan on saying that now because when you get to it, it's going to feel so overwhelming and so dark and so hard, you're not going to have the resources to do it. But if you plan on doing it now, it's like the compass when you go on a hike and you bump it and your foot hits a rock or something, and it, goes, and it always goes back to north. So I want you to be a compass Christian. I want you to always go back to north. The love of God controls my life. The love of God is on my side. The love of God is poured out at the cross. That's where I live and move and have my being. So I give you, brothers and sisters, the last image of the life on the summit, which is a plea for Christian confidence. Life is difficult. God loves you. You are secure in Him. And here's the thing. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from His love. In that confidence, let us pray. Lord, you call us to live as Christian soldiers in a challenging time, and we all have our challenges. Forgive us for the ways that we have sought to come at them in our own strength, from our own perspective, and give us the grace and strength, Lord, to take Paul's message to heart this morning and remember that the God with whom we have to do is the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine. And that all that power and all that love and all that security is ours in Christ Jesus. And use us, Lord, and enable us to live our lives from here forward in the trust that you work all things together for good, no matter what they are, for those who are called according to your purpose, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.